Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we begin today with episode three in our series on the second half of American history. If you recall in our second podcast, we discussed the rise of the Freedmen's Bureau to help African-American aspirations to become educated and learn job skills and attempt to try to make a way for themselves. We sadly looked at the reason why that bureau couldn't last more than 10 years, simply not due to funding as many might conclude, but rather because of course, unfortunately, there was nobody truly to house it, to run it, because there was so much fear due to the Ku Klux Klan and other individuals that were trying to thwart equality in America. So for that reason, we saw and talked about why that fell apart. There was no movement from Andrew Johnson, the president of the United States at the time, to try to push that through. We looked at the Southern Homestead Act as well, and then ended with the conversation about the federal reconstruction, the rise of what we call the Black Codes, as well as, unfortunately, about the KKK themselves and their origins. So today in our third podcast in the second half of US history, we're gonna be looking at where did the justification come from? Where did individuals get the idea that a particular skin color was higher up than another, any more than somebody's religion is more important than somebody else's or that the males are more powerful or better than the females? This is being bolstered, not from anything in the social science community, but rather through the scientific community. That coming with the recent publication of Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species. Charles Darwin essentially ushered in what, become, what became known as the scientific era. He would be erroneously credited with the phrase, the survival of the fittest. He didn't say that. He didn't write it. That would be his colleague, Alfred Russell Wallace, who wrote that, testified to that, but couldn't answer the important, most important question to defend that statement. Why? Why does the strong survive and the weak not? The survival of the fittest or its corollary unsurvival of the unfit. Common sense, you might say, well, you don't need to support that. That's just a given. But no, how does that happen? Not the fact that it does. How does it happen? Russell Wallace didn't have the answer. Neither did Darwin by himself originally. Rather, it's only when he observed pigeons in his own country of England, but then also observed pigeons from other areas around the world and realized that they might be from the same family, but they survived so differently. And Darwin wondered, 
Did the pigeons in Japan, specifically in Tokyo, survive because they adapted differently than the pigeons that he saw in South America aboard the HMS Beagle that he was the scientific advisor on? That's what Darwin was trying to piece together. And that's when he more or less said, survival of the fittest is why is what ultimately comes to fruition by those that are best able to adapt. In other words, change. Stick to your guns, dig in your heels, refuse to change, you wither away. Adapt and change with the times, you have the best chance of survival. Take, for example, the pigeons that one finds in the streets of downtown Tokyo that I was able to see myself. These pigeons eat a certain type of a nut, amongst other things, but one of their mainstays for food is a particular type of a nut that they themselves cannot break open with their beaks. There's no way they can break them open, yet they eat them all the time. Then how does this happen then? Imagine this, and if you don't believe me, look this up. It's beyond, it's almost comical, much less beyond comprehension. The pigeons have learned to take the nuts, fly to a busy intersection, intersection of traffic, made middle of a big city, middle of downtown Tokyo, perch themselves on the wires or poles, light poles that go over the streets, drop the nuts, wait for the cars to go over them, which breaks the nuts, and then swoop down, get the meat from the nuts, and fly off. I know what you're thinking. How do they do that and not become roadkill? Well, some do, but a vast majority do not. To the point that scientists have largely garnered that the pigeons know one to fly down, not because of whether they see cars or not, but because they truly are reading the color of the stoplights. For them, green means stop because green means go to us humans. That's when our cars are going to be flying through those intersections. But when the pigeons see the red from where they're standing, excuse me, the other way around, when they see green, again, that's go, they stop. When they see red, for them, that means go. It's safe to fly down, to swoop down and pick the meat off the streets and then take off. They have figured out how to do that. Tell me that if I took a pigeon from the rural areas of London or the suburbs of Chicago or any major city in the United States and attempted to give them those nuts, there's no way that they could figure that on their own. These pigeons evolved to figure out how to get this plentiful food source by truly, literally reading the traffic lights. This is what Darwin was getting at. Darwin meant his discoveries, his analyses, his writings only to be applied to the natural world. Sadly, it would be the humans, cynical, sinister humans, that would take Darwin's discoveries and misapply them as justification for subjugating other humans that were not like them. Please know that in the United States of America, this was not applied 
this devious application of Darwin's and other scientists' discoveries was not just applied to African Americans. It was applied to almost, if not, every group of Americans in, uh, coming in from, the, from an, uh, another country, immigrants throughout Europe and Asia, as well as to our own Native Americans here. It is almost as though Darwin gave these cynical individuals the justification to pound their chest to say, I am rich and successful because I am fit to survive. You're not. Now, please note, not everybody, not every millionaire subscribed to Darwin's to the misapplication of Darwin's theories. One of them specifically was Andrew Carnegie, who had no interest, no interest at all in trying to push out the less than, the have-nots, simply because of the money that he made. Because we're part of the reason why Carnegie was so unbelievably generous with his money. Please remember, too, that between the Civil War being over and this federal program of reconstruction attempting to try to help former slaves rebuild themselves, the numbers north of 1.7 million, to attempt to try to get them on their feet, the application of Darwin's theories would bolster the many in the South as well as the North to repudiate federal reconstruction policies. That's what would ultimately lead to what became known as Southern Redemption. With the Civil Rights, Civil, Second Civil Rights Act of 1875 passed, this Second Civil Rights Act prohibited public discrimination of any kind. Let me repeat that. The central tenet of the Second Civil Rights Act of 1875 prohibited public discrimination of any kind. You might say, well, wait a minute. That can't be right, Chris. Because what about that Civil Rights Act of 1965? That's right, 90 years later, we needed that act in 1965 because the second Civil Rights Act of 1875 fell through. It was thrown out. It was considered illegal. The Supreme Court of the United States declared the second Civil Rights Act of 1875 to be unconstitutional in its ruling in 1883. Now, listeners, I ask you here to, to, to weigh in here. Do you agree with the court's ruling that discrimination of any kind was out, to be outlawed? The Supreme Court said, no, you can't. The government cannot enforce that. So what I'm asking you to do when I, when I um, prompted you there to weigh in on whether you agree with the court's ruling, consider this is a very uncomfortable example. Imagine I own a restaurant and in this restaurant, I decorate it the way I want. I get the furniture that I want. I offer the type of food that I want. The menu is of my own creation, all of which I am free to do. And one of the last things that I do 
is I go to my door to the restaurant, the glass door, maybe in the glass windows, and I put on there that fill in the blank are not allowed, whether it be the Irish, the African-Americans, Italians, I write on there that these people are not allowed. The second Civil Rights Act of 1875 said, no, Kinsella, you can't do that. That's against the law. The Supreme Court, eight years later, said, nope, actually, it isn't against the law. Do you agree with the Supreme Court ruling? Be careful. Be careful before you answer, because you're not going to like the answer. And if you're gritting your teeth, chances are you figured it out. If you're frustrated and upset, I appreciate it, because I would be too. I don't want to agree with the Supreme Court. But the fact of the matter is, is I see the logic. Why did the Supreme Court ultimately throw the Civil Rights Act out? I wrote on my restaurant, such and such are not allowed. The key word was the word right. You got it. It's the First Amendment guarantee. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Yes, I would like to think that every listener wants to refute that and say, absolutely not, that's crass, that's not moral, that's not ethical, that's not fine. Go ahead and say all that, and I fully agree with you. But you can't say that it's illegal. Listeners in the United States, we either give you the freedom to express yourself or we don't. You can't have it both ways. Wait a minute, though, you say. I can't write a note on my board in my classroom and write the word B-O-M-B. I can't write the word F-I-R-E and point outside. I can't yell fire or yell bomb down a hallway. Isn't that expression? Yes. But there's two reasons why you're not allowed to yell that or write that. Is number one, technically, it's not true. It's a fallacy. The Constitution doesn't protect fallacies, doesn't protect untruths. The fact that I wrote fire or yelled that, unless it's there and I can point to it, then I can't yell that because it's not true. So that's the reason why it falls on one of two counts. The second reason it falls, that it's a failure, that I can be incarcerated or at least arrested for doing that, is because it incites immediate negative responses. Panic, fear, trembling, and people rushing and possibly injuring themselves, all because of a fallacy or a false statement. That's the reason why I not every expression, written or verbal, is 100% allowed in guaranteed protection. You, believe it or not, cannot whisper over the fence to your neighbor a lie about the neighbor on the other side of your yard. You can be nailed for libel and slander. That's not guaranteed protected, protected speech, nor should it be. So please note, though, that when I wrote on, in that example, I wrote on my, I wrote on my windows of my restaurant that so-and-so are not allowed. It's not incendiary. It doesn't cause a panic. And it meets the other criteria, which is so sad. As long as I believed it, then it was a true statement.
and therefore privy to First Amendment protection rights. That's the reason why there will be the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Sadly, America has to wait 90 years, nine decades, before we're going to see movement in that direction again. So again, that was the Supreme Court declaring that unconstitutional as of 1883. We then move to the presidential election of 1876. It would be a bitterly contested election as Ulysses Grant was not going to run for a third term. So Republicans were nominating as his successor, Rutherford B. Hayes, and the Democrats threw up Samuel Tilden from New York. Both of those men ran against one another in a truly bitterly ran election and a bitterly contested election. This would be one of the major presidential elections where Hayes won the electoral math but lost the actual popular vote count. Tilden, the Democrat, got the popular vote. Hayes got the electoral vote. For my American listeners or my international listeners that tune into American news more often than not, I know you're cringing when you hear contested election, electoral math going to one way, popular uh, vote going another way. I know we're tired of that. It happened again in 2000. It happened again in 2016. We're tired of it, but that is the reality of it. Why do we have that electoral college and what possible good does it do? You can listen to my podcast in the first half of American history where I go over that in my podcast on the Constitutional Convention and what Americans gained from that. However, here in 1876, the Republicans and the Democrats were up in arms as to technically who's going to win this election, who gets the White House. The Democrats were digging in their heels as deep as the Republicans. And ultimately, in a typical back barroom smoke-filled agreement. This is what both political national committees agreed. The Republicans could keep the White House for another four years. Hayes, congrats, you won it. Tilden, you're gonna have to step down for the good of the Democratic Party because the Democrats will keep the Southern state houses. If that's not bad enough, the third agreement was truly the worst. Hayes, when you take the oath of office as president of the United States next March 4th, 1877, when you take that oath of office, the policies you propose, the ideas that you would like to see come to fruition in your term, your United States citizens are directly in front of you to the west, to the north, and a little bit behind you there in the northeast. But do not turn your head to the south. We southerners are done with federal politics. You got your White House, you can keep your White House. But we southerners are keeping our state houses and by extension, our state policies. Whether Hayes ultimately agreed with this specifically, we don't know. But we do know based on his actions that that ultimately is what was coming to fruition. 
This, what I'm about to read to you, comes from the Kenyan College Alumni Bulletin that was discussing, this was from Fall 2016, Volume 39, Number 1, where Rutherford B. Hayes, an Ohioan, was ultimately being discussed regarding this election, and of course he being an alumni. So you might say on the surface that the alumni is going to, that the, this catalog, or the, excuse me, this bulletin is going to put a positive spin on Rutherford B. Hayes. But listen, before you jump to that conclusion, this is from page 23, quote, white Southerners were left free to pass poll taxes and other local laws that kept African-Americans away from the ballot box for generations, truly for generations. Violence against blacks increased. The Southern economy returned to a system that was essentially slavery in every way but name. By withdrawing the federal troops, Hayes was telling the South that his administration would not be the one to commit those resources. And in doing so, he gave them the green light to step up their efforts to control blacks politically economically, and socially, so said Professor of History Glenn McNair. He ended, quote, Hayes could not have saved Reconstruction, but he did make clear that he would not try to save it and that it was over. So again, that is the Kenyan Bulletin, Volume 39, Number 1 that despite wanting to put Hayes in a positive spotlight, is acknowledging the facts for what they are. This is the reason why in the classes that I teach on both halves of American history, that federal reconstruction was a failure as a federal policy, culminating or ending technically at 12 o'clock noon on March 4th, 1877, with the inauguration of the 19th President of the United States, who agreed to let the South do as they please. Any of my listeners by chance asking the horrific question, then what was the four-year, $600 million American Civil War fought for? What did 623,000 soldiers get that died and were injured fight for? You see, like I said earlier, you can, with the force of your weapon, with the power of your weapon, you can force your enemy to lay down their weapon. You can make them physically do anything you want, but you will never have the ability to change their thinking or change their mind. Fast forward all the way up through to 2021, and what do we see? That a lot of this same mentality is still gripping America. All we need to do is look at the local headline news of almost any news organization. But let me point out the ones that you may not be familiar with because they didn't make front page news. A lot of people, especially my students, find it hard to believe that in the election of 2000, 
that what was up for a referendum in the state of Alabama was the possibility of repealing the ban on interracial marriages. That ban was in effect from 1901, unless it was repealed, it would continue. It was repealed by 55% of Alabamans that went to the polls on that November 7th, 2000. They repealed that ban. And you might say, okay, Chris, that's progress. And I'm not here to say it isn't. But please look at the other side of that coin. 45% said no. 45% didn't abstain from voting on it. They voted no, don't repeal it. So what does that tell you? In hard numbers, percentages can be a little bit, uh, a little bit easier to kind of ignore. Let's look at some hard numbers. 1.1 million people in Alabama, 1.1 million Alabama voters voted on that referendum. What is that telling you? that over 450,000 people in that one state alone still see a hierarchy based on skin color. Based on skin color. The South, uh, state of South Carolina retained the Confederate flag until 2000. South Carolinian Senator, I won't mention Strom Thurmond by name, on public television referred to the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. He referred to them as the NAARP. Somebody attempted to correct him. CP, sir, not RP. He said, oh, no, I was right. National Association for the Advancement of Retarded People to a laughing audience. So within one ignorant expression, that man has thrown African-Americans and people with mental disabilities under the, under the bus with the, just literally one phrase. Senator Trent Lott, at former Senator Strom Thurmond's birthday in celebration in 2002, is toasting Thurmond, saying if you'd only won the presidential election of 1948, this country would have been better off. Yes, it is true that's Strom Thurmond ran for the presidency in 1948. Why, by, by average, don't we know it, hear about it? Because the headlines were all about Dewey defeats Truman, which, of course, didn't happen. It was such a close election that many, that many thought that the Republican Dewey would defeat incumbent president, Democrat Harry Truman. And, of course, as we know, that didn't happen. But that's what stole the headlines. So nobody was realized, nobody realizes, especially today, that Strom Thurmond admittedly did not win a majority of votes, but he won four states on the South. His campaign platform, America, pre-1865. Senator Trent Lott saying, sorry, I was misunderstood. Well, what exactly, sir, did you mean that America would be better off then with a mentality like that? We are now, of course, beginning to see uh, the ongoing taking down of Confederate statues, Confederate leaders. Now here I am pausing a little bit. I don't know if necessarily that is the right thing to do. These individuals need to be remembered in history for the good as well as the bad. If we erase only the bad, we don't expose future generations to a misguided concept or mindset that we once had. There is not a human being on this earth that has not done 
and perhaps will not do if they are still living, some things of which they are not proud of. And how many of us have one one time fought for something that we truly believe in, yet to learn later on that, thank God, we didn't win because you didn't know all the facts at the time. And maybe perhaps your thinking evolved and matured since then. Do you deserve to be victimized and brutalized because you have your mind has evolved? You have matured? Of course not. And we as a nation are doing that as a whole. Sadly, KKK membership is up with the rise and on the rise after the election of Barack Obama in 26 in 20 in 2008 and is still continuing. Look up this clip on a Google search, Ladson, South Carolina, L-A-D-S-O-N, South Carolina KKK recruiting flyer. You will see a flyer on there of the KKK trying to recruit new people as a result of, of that flyer where they literally give you an information as well as a website for more, for more information. On June 9th, 2011, the United Daughters of the Confederacy inducted one of its latest members. Please don't stereotype them because the latest member was an African-American. So again, please note, like in 2021, where are we going then from here? In terms of racism, moving forward, if we truly make a commitment to the truth and respect for all people, regardless of religion, gender, skin color, or any other orientation, then clearly we have a promising road ahead of us. But when we attempt to vilify individuals that don't think like us, look like us, have the same religion as we do, there is nothing but negative disaster, negativity and disaster awaiting us. We as human beings, are arguably the most intelligent life form on the planet. Can we not apply that to make bring out the best of ourselves and the best of one another? Because on this planet, we are the only ones we have left. Moving forward, when we come back then to podcast number four, we're going to look at how the South reconstructed itself physically and economically as we move on with our series on the second half of American history. Thanks.